Welcome to Prestigious Minds, a podcast about the history of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am Jeremiah, joined with my co-host Rob, and we have a few announcements before we jump into this week's episode. First, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show and that you're having a wonderful week. Secondly, you can find us on social media at pmindspod, that is the letter P-M-I-N-D-S... P-O-D, and that will be our Twitter handle, our Instagram, and then on Facebook you can find us at Prestigious Minds. I won't keep you any further from your reason why you're here, so let's jump into it. Hello folks. Good afternoon, Rob. How's it going? It's going pretty well, pretty well, pretty well. Another beautiful Friday. Starting to cool off because summer is coming to an end. I know. I think Labor Day marks kind of the end of summer, doesn't it? It does. People go back to school and we continue working. I always do like the transition to fall from summer, though. Especially whenever it's not raining. At least it hasn't been raining too much, so that's nice. It's not too bad at all. Okay, folks, we are back talking about Vanderbilt on this episode. This will be our fourth installment, and we're going to we're gonna continue talking about Vanderbilt's steamboat exploits. We're going to go probably away from New York Harbor, which is where the majority of his business has been, and we're going to venture outside of New York and focus more on other areas and eventually the coastal and transcontinental trade, but that's for a later time. Currently, we know that Vanderbilt has sold out his routes in the New York Harbor or New York Sound to... Other entrepreneurs bought bought out his routes, and so now he has a pocket full of money. He's getting some stipend money and royalty money from these routes, correct? Right. Now he is eyeing a different route from Providence, which was a popular waterborne departure for Boston, Providence, Rhode Island to Boston. This was not a very heavily traveled route, and so in 1835... When the Boston Providence Railroad connected the two towns, they put a train depot next to the wharves at Providence India Point. So was he trying to uh, kind of capitalize on that the ferry business there? Yeah, so I believe currently there was only one company there that was using ferrying people. And I believe there you were charging around $8 a fare. Vanderbilt, doing the classic Vanderbilt move, was wanting to be like, hey, I see potential profits there. It's really high because no one else is really doing this, at least no one of note. He wants to begin this route, and he does so by having a new vessel commission called the Lexington. Is he going to do the classic Vanderbilt move of moving in, slashing rates, killing the competition? It's kind of where I see things going. Well, we can't can't tell you just yet. We're almost there. Rob, uh, you want to tell us... The, about the Lexington, this new state-of-the-art steamboat? So, yeah, I believe it's um, it's like 200, 210, 208 feet. She's weighing a whopping 488 tons, which is pretty big for the time. But, um, you know, I think her her speed was rated for about 20 miles an hour, I believe. She could make the 210-mile trip in under 12 hours. Hot diggity dog. I know. Burning half the dang uh, wood fuel that, you know, other steamships would. That were her size. You're telling me that Vanderbilt is at it again, outdoing the competition. Probably 
with this newfound money that he has gotten to commission not just a larger steamboat, but with state-of-the-art technology in saving saving fuel, essentially. You know, that kind of speaks to Vanderbilt uh, in his business practices. He's not only trying to just make money by rooting out competition, but he does so in a very smart way. He's increasing the technolo- technology of his business uh, ventures, too. So, you know, if you're just being stagnant as a business person and you don't try to incorporate newer technology, better technology, someone will eventually come and do that and kind of put you out of business. 100%. You're talking about a time where ingenuity and innovation, you can make leap and bounds of progress, not minor improvements, which you kind of see, you, you see that if you keep up with technology or anything today that happens. I mean, it's very rare that you have a major breakthrough. I mean, now you see technology, like no matter what, what it is, computer, computer, cell phones, even just basic electrical equipment, technology is is increasing so fast it's hard to keep up with. I mean, if you buy a new phone now, it's obsolete in eight months. Back then, advancements were usually slow and people were used to that. When you have something that's increasing at a faster rate, it's hard to keep up with. Especially if you're talking then, it may have been years before you had something more efficient. Which also probably made it worth the investment of new technology. Not only the savings, like in this case, the savings on fuel cost, and I'm assuming you can charge the same price because we all have heard the, the mantra, time is money. If it takes you less time to get to your destination, you have to use less fuel to get there, and you can carry more people as well as offering a higher quality of experience. You have overall a better experience for the customer, a quicker time slot. You're going to make that money up fairly quickly, even if you lower the price. Right. Something that's not really talked about is if you see in consumer electronics now, if you have something that's a couple years out of date, it may not interface with new technology very well, which makes it more expensive to keep up. But if you looked, I mean, even 70 years ago, you know, if you kept a piece of equipment, it would be, you know, you could keep it for 20, 30 years. I imagine the same thing would be with the commercial um, or in commercial shipping. You know, if you had boilers or something or a ship that would last 10 years, you were kind of looking at, okay, this thing is going to pay for itself pretty quick. But if you're having to put new boilers and stuff, training, running equipment every couple of years just to keep up, that can kind of get uh, tedious and painful for the pocketbook. This is also something that's very fascinating is the Lexington, being state-of-the-art as it was, also was one of the first steamboats to have lighting, gas-powered lighting. They had gas lamps wow. on board, which is pretty was innovative it? for the 1830s. It was this, I, I'm guessing this was not a, this was like... Um, your whale oil lamps or that I did not look up. I want to say that it's probably either whale oil or maybe they had early access to some kerosene. Cause I believe kerosene was being produced around this time, just not in large quantities. Um, but that is pretty, pretty fascinating. So the top competitor for Vanderbilt was the Boston and New York transportation company, which was operating six smaller vessels. The chairman that oversaw the operation was Moses H. Grunell, and they built a new boat to compete with the Lexington, which they named the Narragansett, or some variation of that. My southern accent probably doesn't help me pronounce that name properly, but I hope you all had a nice little chuckle from that. It was very unstable on the water, which made it not a real good competitor with the Lexington, 
with the Narragansett pretty much a non-factor, Vanderbilt launched another steamboat that he named the Cleopatra in 1837. And around this time, the railroads also extended their service to Stoddington, outbound, and also outbound rails up to 48 miles. This matters because this changed the traffic. Right now, people are offloading and onloading at Providence, but we're about to see that change. Due to dwindling traffic through Providence, Vanderbilt and Grinnell worked a price agreement to restore the $8 fare that we had mentioned before. So, a little side note, what Vanderbilt did was whenever he started his steamboat company, or I guess not the company, but he started running steamboats to Providence, he cut the price in half at the beginning, all the way down to $4. I think it dwindled maybe down to around $1.06 or $1.60, which is pretty significant. When they restored this, Given the price structures, it was it ended up being cheaper for a passenger to travel from Stonington to Boston rather than from Providence to Boston. This was because you had to travel via railroad, you had to make a different stop, and if you were to get off straight at Stonington, then you had a more direct route, and they also did this intentionally so that they could drive more traffic through Stonington versus Providence. Got any thoughts on that one, Rob? It just seems like he's trying to, uh, like, as the as the rail technology you know increases and just the rail lines themselves are expanding. They're trying to keep up, and it's not really working out for him. It seems like steam power ships, as far as uh, for commuters, I think they're going to get beat out pretty quick by uh, by rail. Yeah, it's uh, it's a problem that we're going to see Vanderbilt think ahead uh, in a future future segment. We'll see what he does to combat that, but. What do you do? You think Vanderbilt is really looking in the future, or do you think he's kind of stuck on steamboats right now? Do you think he cares how he makes his money in transportation, or do you think he's like steamboats are definitely the way to go? I think he recognized steam was an option very early on, whenever they start appearing, which we had talked about. I believe when he saw the expanding railroads and how that they're not just going to run from city to city, but they're also going to make overland travel just as fast, if not faster in a lot of instances, as well as safer for people. And when you add those factors in about having to get on a steamboat, you probably have less capacity. The price is relatively the same, probably. The time is not the same. The quality of ride probably isn't quite as good as it is taking a train car so I can imagine that he probably saw this coming because we already see that he wanted to get out of the small like ferrying business or you know here let me take you up the river and back down the river you know yeah. now he's trying to go between major ports where there is not as much foot traffic so he's not really changed what he's doing he's just changed the location of where he's doing it right I mean the re- whole reason he started going you know into the, the steamship business is because like Horse and carriage was so uncomfortable. I mean, you had the worst ride possible. And that's why passenger trains are becoming really, really popular too. Like it may be, it may be easier to take a, a horse and buggy just for a shorter trip, but it's going to be so uncomfortable. There's also like the factor of if you live out on a peninsula, especially up in the New England area next to the coast where you have, you know, jets of land sticking out there, you don't really have bridges that can span that far right now. Yeah. And so you have to go all the way around the cove in order to do that. Now, train, you would technically have to do the same thing. The difference is you can do it a whole lot faster and you can do it right. way more 
maybe more steady and you don't have to stop as many times. The steamboats, obviously, depending on what it was, if it was a big enough gap, no matter how much train you had, you're, you're never going to get a bridge across that gap. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to build a bridge across there. So the ferrying business still can survive in there. And in some cases, like the Staten Island Ferry, I believe Vanderbilt still operated because of that reason. Like there was no reason not to. Yeah. I mean, the one good thing about trains is like you don't have to worry about the weather as much. Because, I mean, if it's too bad, you can't, you can't launch your ship. That kind of brings us up to a very fascinating and uh, entertaining story about this so we had mentioned in the past like steamboat racing and how it wasn't a friendly race and this is a little different as we mentioned steamboat races became somewhat popular as more of uh, competitors seeing who had the biggest fastest ship Vanderbilt decided to challenge the newly assembled Atlantic Steamboat Company's John W. Richmond against Vanderbilt's own Lexington in the spring of 1838. However, Vanderbilt's tenacity got the better of him in this because the Richmond barely beat out the Lexington. Ironically, later that year, he ended up selling the Lexington to Grinnell for around $60,000. $60,000. That's a lot of that's a lot of money. I guess at the end of the day, Vanderbilt still ended up winning. Well, wow, that's I mean, imagine 60,000 bucks. I wonder how much it costs to commission that. I don't know, but you probably look it up. Another note here, and we won't talk about this story, but the Lexington had a tragic end. And if you want to hear, well, more or less read about that tragic end, then you can go view that post that has been put on Facebook, on our Facebook page and or Instagram. And it'll tell you the story, the tragic story of what happened to the Lexington. Moving on. What's Vanderbilt doing now? He's he's done run the steam race. He's lost. He sold the Lexington. He's still operating. Is there anything else going on with this uh, steamboat trade around Rhode Island and Massachusetts? I don't know about him, but what about his cousin? His uh, cousin, Oliver Vanderbilt. What a name, right? Oliver, man. Cornelius and Oliver. Hell yeah. I believe that he had bought a small ferry dock from the Keyport Company to run steamboat operations very similar to Vanderbilt. Oh, like, I wonder why he's doing that. I wonder if he's like, man, Cousin Corny, or Corneli, is doing pretty good. I think I'm going to get into that. Cousin Corny. <laughs> Cousin Corneli. I mean, I don't think it's a horrible idea. I mean, his... Uh, I mean, clearly not. it's not a bad idea, but... You would hope that maybe Vanderbilt was like, hey, man, I'll buy you out. And maybe that's what he's going for. Or maybe. Maybe, maybe. he's just like, hey... I see you're running this other operation. Why don't you just go in business with me? You get to keep the majority of it. I keep like 10, 20% of it, and you can run your operation. I just think about it this way. Like, Vanderbilt's made a name for himself. He's like, I, you know, I started with the, uh, I guess, the wind-powered ferries. Uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to make my way, and I'm finally prominent in the, ship, the, the shipping business. And then your cousin's like, hey, I'm going to try that too. Yeah, I, we, <laughs> Vanderbilt, however, does not care that Oliver is his cousin. He immediately started a price war until <laughs> the price came all the way down to six and a half cents a trip. <laughs> Man, I think he had a grudge. He was like, how dare you think that you can come in here and even dare to compete against me? Here's something funny about that. He even filed a lawsuit Drawing into question Oliver's ownership of that dock that he bought from the Keyport Company. And eventually, while the litigation was going on, 
he decided to pay to have a load or two of gravel dumped in the in the port or the or the dock <laughs> rather um so he couldn't use it he just he can't even port his boats <laughs> he's like what happened like uh dumped some gravel in your in your uh, oh, pond there oh you're gonna get a beach boat oh so sad <laughs> so, so sad, sad. <laughs> However, though, Oliver did stay in business for a few more years before eventually folding on the company. Sadly, he did not survive Vanderbilt's cutthroat business tactics. Well, I'd say not. Who would think, like, your own cousin, you'd be like, you know what, I'm going to gravel you. I guess this is another version of I will bury you, but on a very small scale. Yeah. Those are some interesting stories about what Vanderbilt continued doing. I think this is a good time for us to take a break, and we'll be back with you in a minute. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you are enjoying it. There is one little thing that we ask that you may do for us, and that is click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. Really appreciate it, and thank you so much. And we'll get back to it. Welcome back, guys. We kind of ended with, um, you know, Vanderbilt screwing his cousin over, bankrupting him, probably killing him. But oh, well, well I, don't, I don't know. He wasn't the mafia, yeah, so well, okay. well, I mean, he did. You know, you never know. Anyway, so this is we're kind of going to jump into Vanderbilt getting into the railroad business a little bit with he, he and a man named George Law were both invited to sit on the board of directors for the Long Long Island Railroad Company, and that ran from Brooklyn to Greenport, and that kind of gave Vanderbilt a, a nice taste of what it's like to be in the railroad business. So Vanderbilt and his brother actually joined uh, joined an, arrange, an arrangement with the Norwich and uh, Worcester, and which they had a partnership with the Long Island Railroad Company. So as you as we've talked about before, the you know Vanderbilt sold the Cleopatra and the Worcester to them. And uh, Jacob was actually contracted as a captain to oversee the operations of the Cleopatra and Worcester. And Vanderbilt was contracted to oversee the construction of a new steamer called the Atlantic. So even though they're, they've kind of sold their stake in those ships, they're still getting like to be, you know, to be able to captain them and getting, getting some, I'm sure revenue from that. Yeah, I think what this did was they're both, well, I don't think they're both on the board. So George Law and Vanderbilt are both on the board for the Long Island Railroad. And then I think Captain Jake, as Jacob was known, Vanderbilt's brother, had done business with Vanderbilt before. He got contracted, as you had said, to run those two ships. And then Vanderbilt was contracted purely to see the construction of a new ship. He was making money from both angles. The Norwich and Worcester, I believe, was also a railroad. And so they purchased these ships to ferry between the railroads. Right. Which was a pretty good agreement because now you have, you're owning a, like a pretty large, well, I don't think you own, you're not controlling it, but he has an interest in seeing them succeed, but he also has an interest in the steamboat. So he's getting paid from both angles. And since he's being contracted just to oversee the operation, he can still control his operations. Actually, the the Atlantic, it would be a state-of-the-art boat or ship, if you will. But it included gas lighting and a lot of amenities that other boats wouldn't have had. And it was supposed to be like the flagship for their company. Unfortunately, like a few months after their maiden voyage, there was a there was a their gale force winds came in and it blew it ashore. 
on a rocky coast off of Fisher Island, and 42 people died. That is a problem. Yeah. I mean, just imagine. Okay. Imagine you're, you have the choice of, hey, we can take the railroad, or we can take this cool boat. But then, 42 people died drowning. That's the thing. So, that's the thing. Is there... I don't want to say this as in, like, it wasn't common, but public opinion was saying it was common for you to die on a steamboat if there was any problem whatsoever. The amount of stories we've come across during Vanderbilt's trek into steamboating and even sailboating, like, is not unheard of. But I also wonder, and this may be a nuanced look at it, I wonder if maybe it was just because tragedy is easier to remember. Like, it's like it's more shocking. Oh, 100%. And, yeah. And so... You read about one or two accidents happening, and you're like, oh my god, all steamboats are going to burn, or they're going to sink, they're going to be unstable, and people are going to die. I mean, that's the thing, is if you think about rail accidents, they've they've happened before, they happened a lot more in the beginning, and so on, but... If you have to choose, if you have to choose, like just my thought, if you have to choose between dying in a train accident, which is horrific, or drowning to death, or maybe you know a boiler exploding in your face and maiming you, and then dying later, a couple days later, it, it's kind of an easier choice to me, you know, instant death hopefully versus you know scalding hot water or drowning. And actually, I think the the public opinion kind of swayed this way too because you couldn't really drown on a train. That's not even irony. That's just a pure cold hard truth. Yeah. So it looks like, you know, public opinion is going towards the rails and lead us into the uh, what's going to happen in the future here with uh, Vanderbilt and his uh, investments. So we had already seen Vanderbilt take a little bit of a uh, dip his toe in the water with the railroads, and this will be the first time. So in a partnership with Daniel Drew, which we've mentioned in the past, he, as well as Drew, acquired a controlling interest in the Providence and Stonington Railroad. However... Com- the Commodore, as Vanderbilt's called, probably should call him more like uh, the Commodore. Maybe it's easier to keep up with him. Anyway, he <laughs> remained mostly in steamboats. The reason, so what what it is going on in here is I think, as we had mentioned previously earlier in this episode, is Vanderbilt sees that railroads are becoming more prominent. There is going to be, an, it's a new mode of travel. And if you notice, water can only carry you so far in so many places. Right. Trains have the potential to carry you anywhere you want to go on land and across water passages because bridges are a thing. So right. he now has this controlling interest in a railroad company. I believe he may still be on the board at this time as well. So he's now a part of two different railroads. He still has a fairly large operation of steamboats. To show this, he ends up challenging George Law to a race with his Cornelius Vanderbilt, which is a ship that he had built, against Law's Organ, which is a ship that he had built. And this was a $1,000 bet. Now, this is a little confusing, given the name of the ship. Bear with us. This is a very (laughs) fun story. As we had mentioned earlier in this episode about a previous steamboat race, there wasn't as much going on with that, but this is a fairly fascinating story. So, during the race... The Cornelius Vanderbilt and the Oregon were side by side. They were swapping the lead back and forth, you know, real tight racing. And then at the turnaround point, the Vanderbilt overshot the turn, resulting in a small collision with the Oregon. 
This actually damaged the wheelhouse of the organ, but they keep on steaming ahead and they keep on going. This actually kind of gave the organ a little bit more momentum, not from the impact, but just because they didn't have to overshoot the turn. And so they were pretty well ahead and halfway through the lead, or my, let me rephrase that, halfway back, strongly, they end up running out of coal. Running out of coal, man. If they ran it. How do you not <laughs> pack enough coal? Come well, on maybe maybe it wasn't as efficient. Who knows? They they end up tearing the interior of this ship apart. So they, they first, I'm sure, tables, chairs, books, anything they can think of, they start throwing in there, and they're like, oh, hell. They end up tearing, pulling off the mantles, the woodworking, <laughs> the bar tops. I, I, well, I guess the bar tops weren't made of wood, but hell, they probably were. Anything that would burn, they were stuffing underneath that bowl or trying to keep it hit. Wow. Keep it lit. <laughs> By the time they make it back, the organ remained in the lead, but they ended up finishing roughly 1,200 feet above the Vanderbilt. The Vanderbilt, the Cornelius Vanderbilt, had lost the race right. and the bet. Yeah. Um, how how much was that bet in today's dollars? If so it was a thousand back then, that's about, about 30, 32,000. That's a steep loss. That is a pretty significant bet to lose. I, don't, I couldn't lose a bet like that today or tomorrow. No, I'm, it'd be hard to lose just a $1,000 a day bet, you know, so yeah, that way. Yeah, exactly. But Vanderbilt didn't have to pay to rebuild the interior of his ship either, did he? <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much that, that uh, $1,000 went to that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know specifically, but I'm sure a good portion of that probably went to just rebuilding the rebuilding the ship <laughs> just imagine like just <laughs> in a race with a horse and you're just feeding your horse to your horse <laughs> eventually run out of horse yeah you eventually <laughs> run out of horse so that's a that's a pretty fun story to yeah. to mention there and a little bit more lighthearted than the other ones where people um die yeah from closing off the valves which i'm pretty sure they did in this race <laughs> oh 100 percent. if they're running yeah 100 percent. if they're running out of coal halfway through yeah they're doing something Vanderbilt's licking his wounds from losing this race. But by the close of the 1840s, we see the Commodore is looking at the writing on the wall at the growing number of railroads and started looking at routes that could not be easily replaced by rail. While focusing on ocean-going vessels for transcontinental trade, he also, over the next decade, began the divesting of his domestic steamboat holdings. So he's he's like getting out of the intercontinental, Dom- I guess. The yeah, yeah, he's getting out of the domestic trade, the small, the small trade, the small stuff. Eh? He's wanting to go across the pond and maybe do a little trading across the water. Eh? Well, not quite across the pond, maybe more adjacent. Pond adjacent. Okay, okay. Pond adjacent. There we go. He started slowly investing his time and money into the railroads. He is also looking for steamboat routes that can never be replaced by rail. Which is incredibly smart. Yeah, so he had a lot of foresight here. You know, for someone who is not educated, like formally educated, this dude is like, he knows the business. Well, you have to survive, man. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Yeah, it sounds like he's the biggest dog. Now he's trying to be. This sets us up for the following episode about Vanderbilt. In the next episode, we'll end up talking a little bit more about his family. I know we had mentioned that previously, either last episode or the episode before last, but timelines don't line up, so this will be the episode following that will have a little bit more to do with his family, his children, as well as his um, 
transcontinental trade that he dives into, which is a very fascinating story. So, right. I mean, we we know what, like, who Vanderbilt is, but we want to know, like, what he's done in his family. Like, who, who he really is. We haven't spent too much time talking about, I mean, we've talked a little bit about his personality and, and whatnot, but we haven't really talked about his family, how he treats his family, what's his purpose is for doing certain things. We... As we did with uh, Carnegie and Rockefeller, we'll do the same with Vanderbilt. And you're going to notice a very stark contrast here. This has been another one of Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod and go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds. <laughs>